the Communist, the official organ of the United Communist Party of America. All Power to the Workers. Volume 1, Number 1. Saturday, June 12, 1920. Article Number 1. At Last. The United Communist Party, which thousands of revolutionary workers have been demanding since September of last year, is a reality. By action of the representatives of the former Communist Labor Party membership and representatives of the majority of the members of the Communist Party, the two organizations have been consolidated and have become the United Communist Party. The convention through which the two groups were united was of itself an achievement. Despite police persecution and constant surveillance of the active members of the two organizations, 60 delegates met for a week and discussed and legislated without discovery. But more important than the fact that the delegates were able successfully to defy the agents of Mr. Palmer and of the various state prosecutors are the results of this convention. When, after meeting as separate groups for a day, the delegates from the two organizations were united, there quickly appeared upon the breasts of most of the delegates the words, at last, in great black letters. A circular bearing that caption had been distributed among the delegates and the words had been torn from it to give expression to their sentiment. Since then, the convention has completed its work and these words bear a deeper meaning than that of a mere expression of relief that after months of negotiations, unity has been achieved. The break in the left-wing movement, which began at the left-wing conference of last June, and which took a more permanent form at the September conventions at which the Communist Party and Communist Labor Party were organized, had serious consequences for the Communist movement in this country. This division segregated in one organization the language groups which, through their sacrifice and devotion, had laid the foundation of the Communist movement. In the other was the American element of the left wing, which was needed to give expression to Communism in this country. The Communist Party, from the very beginning of its existence, found its work hampered because it had in its ranks only a few people capable of expressing communist principles in the English language. There was a powerful party organization made up of the language groups, ready to serve as the driving force. But this force could not be given full expression because the medium for such expression did not exist in the party. The unity achieved during the recent convention is a unity between the most aggressive and active members of the language groups, those elements which place the opportunity to work for communist principles above loyalty to language group organizations, and the American elements which have the capability of making the party an organization that will function in the class struggle in this country, making it a party of action. It is the juncture of these two elements achieved at the Unity Convention that gives significance to the at last. The words have still another significance. The two organizations which are combined in the United Communist Party came into existence at a time when it was thought that they might function openly. 
Since that time, the ruling class of this country has given ample evidence through raids, arrests, deportations, and imprisonments that no organization which is so fundamentally a challenge to the whole capitalist order as a communist party must be, can escape the full weight of the power of persecution which the capitalists have at their command. The United Communist Party makes no pretense of legality. It has not attempted to express the fundamental communist principles in a way to make them pass the censorship of its bitter enemy. The program of the United Party is what it should be, a bold challenge to the whole capitalist system and a declaration of revolutionary purpose without reservation or compromise. The program of the party declares that the final struggle between the workers and the capitalists, between exploited and exploiter, will take the form of a civil war and that it is the function of the United Communist Party systematically to familiarize the working class with the necessity of armed insurrection as the only means through which the capitalist government and the capitalist system can be overthrown. This declaration in the program of the United Party marks an advance over the previous program declarations of the two communist organizations as great as the declaration of principles in these programs were advances over the principles of the Socialist Party, from which they sprung. The United Communist Party enters the working class struggle in this country as the first clear-cut expression of the revolutionary movement that has achieved a splendid victory in Russia, that temporarily held Hungary and Bavaria, and that is nearing its goal of the workers' dictatorship for the transformation of capitalism in Germany, in Italy, and the other European countries. It not only clearly expresses the principles which have guided the action in the working class victories achieved thus far, but it has within its ranks the people who can carry those principles into action and make the party a living, vital force in the struggles of the workers in this country. The last 18 months have been the formative period for this movement. It was to be expected that during this period, there should be alignments and realignments of various elements of a revolutionary character. The various factional controversies discouraged many active and valuable comrades. They refused to join either party until unity was achieved, and thus the communist movement was deprived of the support of many who would have been a source of added strength. While there still remains outside of the United Party, a faction made up of part of the language groups, the logic of the situation will compel them to join the United Party or bring about the disintegration of their organization. They have before them the alternative of at once throwing their lot with the United Party and becoming part of a strong, virile communist movement, or of repeating the history of the Socialist Labor Party. They must choose between these alternatives because there is no basis for their separate existence except the national spirit which is generated by the organizations in separate language groups. They cannot challenge the principles stated in the program of the United Communist Party because no clearer communist program could be written. 
If they place the autonomy of their language group organizations above communist principles, they cannot hope to become a factor of any importance in the communist movement in this country. The realization of this fact will soon be forced home to this group, and there is hardly a doubt but that the best elements in it would soon be functioning as part of the United Communist Party. It is because the achievements of the Unity Convention have thus cleared the atmosphere and opened the way for the building of a powerful party, the vanguard of the working class, and a party of action, that the, at last, of the delegates is echoed on this page. At last, a united party. At last, a clear-cut revolutionary program. Now, to the struggle, to action, on to victory. Resolution on Legal Defense, adopted by Convention of the United Communist Party. Hundreds of party members have been and are being compelled to come into the courts upon criminal charges involving the declarations of the Communist parties, the Communist Party and the Communist Labor Party, now united. These arrested members and the party members generally have not been authoritatively advised as to the party policy with regard to legal defense. Such defense, in which is involved the party advocacies, become of the highest importance in regard to keeping clear our party principles. For these reasons, it is resolved by this convention that 1. The United Communist Party favors every use of legal technique to save its members from prison or deportation, providing there is nothing pleaded in defense which contradicts or confuses the party principles. 2. No lawyer shall be employed in the defense of any of our members who will not agree to be bound in their pleading by the plain, obvious meaning of the party declarations. In case of doubt as to the meaning, the interpretation of the Central Executive Committee, conveyed through an authorized representative, shall control. 3. No person, other than the defendant themselves, shall appear to testify as to the meaning of the party program except by special authorization of the Central Executive Committee. 4. No member shall plead guilty to any charge involving the advocacies of the party. 5. Every member shall refuse to answer questions or to supply information as defendant or witness concerning the party organization, its work, or membership. Article number 2. The Convention of Revolutionists During the first week of September 1919, there were organized in the United States two communist parties. Within two months, both parties together had completed an enrollment of more than 40,000 dues-paying members. The prospects pointed to a quick increase to 60,000, perhaps 70,000, about three-fourths of the former Socialist Party membership. Along came the Lusk Committee raids and arrests in New York, also sporadic arrests elsewhere in connection with the November 7th celebration. Organization of Communists was checked. An ominous lull. Then came the avalanche of the new year. The Palmer nationwide raids, arrests, and brutalities. At the end of January, 
Secretary of Labor Wilson held that alien members of the Communist Party were subject to deportation. Communists, members of both parties, were branded as outlaws in the courts of New York and New Jersey. Like results appeared imminent in Massachusetts, Illinois, Michigan, California, Ohio, Indiana, in many other states. No longer were their party headquarters, neither national, state, nor local. The active party officials were in jail or were fugitives. No meetings could be held without inviting arrests. Very little money could be raised even for defense and relief of prisoners. By February 1920, the two thriving parties of October 1919 had vanished. The Luskers and Palmerites had done their work completely, perfectly. This country was immunized from the quote-unquote Red Terror, the terror which haunts the world. Sometime recently, somewhere between the Atlantic and Pacific, between the Gulf and the Great Lakes, two groups of elected delegates assembled as the United Conference of the Communist Party and the Communist Labor Party. Of the former, 32. Of the latter, 25. And one fraternal delegate, also a representative of the Executive Committee of the Communist International. These 59 delegates came together from all parts of the United States, held sessions for seven days, debated every issue with absolute thoroughness, laid out the plan of work for the United Communist Party, all under the most perfect circumstances conceivable for such a convention. One who holds in their hand the scroll upon which is inscribed the record of this mysterious gathering is amazed, for one thing, at the role of delegates, Communist Party and Communist Labor Party. But all these strange names? Not one of the 1919 Communists present? Search the roll again not one familiar name. Remarkable achievement of the Lusk-Palmer Inquisition, not one of the 1919 communists in the list. In spite of the fact that these delegates came together on a call for a unity conference, in spite of all realization of the fearful blow it would be to the communist movement in this country if unity were not at once achieved, it was not until noon of the seventh day that this issue was decided conclusively. Neither side was fully conscious of the undercurrent of sentiment on the other side. Factional controversies of nearly a year's standing surcharged the atmosphere with suspicion. Suspicion not only across the lines, but within each camp. None of the delegates were willing to surrender their reservations until after a long series of debates some of little intrinsic importance, many on basic questions of communist understanding and practice, questions which had never before been really faced in the United States. One delegate hit upon the most salient truth about this convention in the remark that, in contrast to any other convention in which he had taken part, either in Europe or America, this convention had met squarely every essential issue and debated it fully to its ultimate solution. There were three separate advanced sessions of the two parties. 
To each of these conventions was presented the tentative draft of a program and constitution previously prepared by a joint committee, Damon, Caxton, and Fisher from the Communist Party, and Brown, Klein, and Dubner from the Communist Labor Party. During the second of these sessions, a message came to the Communist Party convention that the Communist Labor Party convention had accepted the agreements of the joint committee as a basis for unity, reserving all amendments for joint discussion. At this moment, the Communist Party Convention had under consideration a substitute manifesto, program, and constitution presented by Ford for the New York District delegation. The debate quickly centered on the declaration as to mass action, it being conceded that the Joint Committee program was more acceptable as an entirety. The main contention was that the Joint Committee had not used direct and unequivocal language as to force. It was answered that the criticism was only of words, that there could not possibly be any doubt, but that the program pointed clearly to armed revolt as the ultimate and inevitable form of mass action. Personal suspicion stimulated this argument. The outside group of the Communist Party, the majority members of the Central Executive Committee, had manufactured the issue of force as a dominant item in the Communist Party split. There had never been such a factional issue, but the Eastern delegates particularly were determined to make certain that there would be nothing about the handling of this subject which might leave a loophole for the Communist Party opposition. Agreement was reached for the revision of the program in a number of particulars, the Communist Party delegates to support these amendments as a unit. The Communist Party Convention further bound its members on the issue of federation, also to retain the Communist Party name and emblem. The first joint session opened with a spirited dispute as to election of committees. Some of the Communist Party delegates insisted upon discussion of the program as the first order of business. They said that they were not ready to commit themselves as to joint proceeding until the program was disposed of. This brought forth angry protest. It served as a challenge to the group unity of the Communist Labor Party. It was urged that unity had been achieved by coming together on the basis of the Joint Committee program and Constitution, that every provision was open to amendment by the Convention, that there might be a new division on the issues to come up, but that the old party division was gone. A bolt of nine or ten of the Communist Party delegates was started. Klein, from the Communist Labor Party, reintroduced the motion to proceed with the discussion of the program. Peace was restored. The opening debates were sparring matches with a strong undercurrent of nervousness. Three-score persons engaged in a criminal conspiracy spent two hours to decide whether capitalism breaks down in that it fails to produce the needs of life or whether the collapse is due to the failure to provide. After considerable uncertainty, 
the argument prevailed that capitalism, in spite of all its equipment, stultifies production. The wheels of industry turn only at the call of profit, regardless of all capabilities for production. Crisis or no crisis, capitalism has never functioned to provide the needs of the masses. In the playfulness of this debate was expressed relaxation and the forestalling of another premature clash. This was the safe way of getting acquainted, the suppressed form of the struggle for unity. Restrained resentment and suspicion broke loose into a furious storm during the next session. At the first statement in the program concerning the overthrow of the capitalist system, it was insisted that the word forcible be added. Likewise, at the first mention of conquest of political power, it was demanded that there be added by the use of armed force. One amendment was piled upon another, a veritable force panic. In vain was it argued that this part of the program contained only preliminary definitions, statements of the goal to be achieved, that the program, under appropriate subdivisions, gave full attention to the methods of action, that the item of armed force does not stand by itself, but is the inevitable culminating aspect of mass action, that this tactic must be presented in its developmental character, armed uprising as the unavoidable sequence of the advancing class conflict. The Communist Labor Party delegates, for the most part, were ready for a test of strength against the Communist Party irreconcilables. They were conscious that this minority would have to accept defeat, since the point to be voted was only on what page something should be stated in the program. Others sensed too much danger of misunderstanding behind such a vote, too much anger where agreement could be easily reached. Caxton moved to recommit this part of the program, then to adjourn. There were some protests, but the motion prevailed. Meanwhile, the tension was relaxed by the brilliant satirical speech of Sherwood, whose Yankee wit was the perfect antidote for passionate argument on an artificially stimulated issue. The Communist Party Night Caucus, which followed, the amendments proposed by the Joint Committee and a decision to dispose first of the section on mass action gave the convention smooth sailing the next morning. A spirited debate ensued on the proposition to limit nominations to legislative officers according to the clause of the Communist Party program. The issue was not clear-cut since the anti-parliamentarians took the side of limiting nominations as one way of expressing opposition to all nominations. Brown, from the Communist Labor Party, and some of the Communist Party speakers, argued directly against nominations of any kind. Damon, from the Communist Party, contended that this clause was needed to discourage petty nominations by local units of the party. Rafailov, from the Communist Labor Party, Caxton, from the Communist Party, Malcolm, from the Communist Labor Party, and others pointed out that the general proposition of parliamentary action 
was not involved in this debate, that to the extent we were to have any nominations at all, it was indispensable under the American system to name the head of the ticket, the president, governor, or mayor, that this clause had been written into the Communist Party program under the misconception that this was the proper method of meeting the ministerial question, the fact being that the socialist ministers in Europe had all been elected as legislative candidates, that in this country the socialists, whether elected to legislative or executive offices, had all behaved equally badly, that finally it was no occasion to worry about the actions of a communist president, because the revolution would forestall this contingency and that minor executive officers could serve just as well to be thrown out of office as the communists elected to the legislatures. By a close vote, the paragraph was retained, but the limitation is of no immediate practical moment, since the convention further went on record against all nominations during the 1920 campaigns. On the third day occurred the longest and most stubborn debate of the convention, that on industrial unionism. This was another three-cornered affair. The Communist Party Convention had passed up the question of the international workers of the world because it was apparent that this question could not be settled by agreement. Perhaps two-thirds of the Communist Party delegates favored a direct endorsement of the IWW and a program of cooperation reserving criticism of the IWW theorizing. The other Communist Party delegates considered the IWW as essentially no better than the American Federation of Labor, citing the reactionary character of the IWW in some of the eastern cities. All of the Communist Party delegates were agreed upon an absolute stand against the AF of L as an inherently anti-revolutionary organization, which must be destroyed. On the other hand, there was a strong current in the Communist Labor Party ranks for a treatment of the subject of industrial unionism from a general viewpoint, which would neither include direct endorsement of the IWW nor absolute condemnation of the AFL. The lead in this debate was taken by Dawson, who argued that the AFL must be considered from the angle of the local unions, not from the side of the Gompers officialdom. That industrial unionism was having a development in the many fields aside from the IWW. That the need was for a call to a new general industrial union, a new one big union. On both sides, there was not only a close analysis of the proper function of a communist party, in connection with the unions, but also a wealth of illustrative material out of actual shop and union experience. Machinists, miners, and shop builders fused their practical understanding with the more abstract conceptions of those whose vision was focused on the ultimate revolutionary clash. The cleavage was not between the intellectuals and the rank and file but between the workers in the industries who had undergone contrasting forms of experience. The original Joint Committee proposal on this subject 
had been taken over from a draft by the Chicago District Committee. Dozens of amendments and substitutes were brought before the convention. But finally, the section was adopted as originally presented. As a result of the debate, however, the committee opened the subject for reconsideration the next day, presenting two amendments which were accepted. In the sentence, a communist who belongs to the American Federation of Labor on account of absolute job necessity should seize every opportunity to voice their hostility to this organization, not to reform it, but to destroy it. There was eliminated the phrase, on account of absolute job necessity. The sentence, a stronger IWW must be built, was stricken out. The unity issue flared up again on the question of party name. On the first vote, there were 22 counted for Communist Party, 24 against. A roll call was demanded. The Communist Party names were read first. 30 votes were recorded for Communist Party. The Communist Labor Party delegates resented what they considered a coercive vote without any chance for a discussion. An indignation speech was made by Flynn, which provided the moral power of effective minority criticism. With the opening of the next session came a ballot vote on the United Communist Party or Communist Party, with United written underneath. The vote was 33 to 22 for United Communist Party. This appeared to be the real achievement of unity, the breakdown of the old party lines, but there were still the elections. Two important debates came under the consideration of the Constitution, one on party centralization, the other on federation. In the first instance, the issue of centralization came up on the amendment making the Central Executive Committee appointment and removal of organizers subject to the approval of the District Executive Committees. On the one side, it was argued that this meant the substitution of autonomous districts for autonomous federations, a central executive shorn of real authority and real capability of action. That democracy was not to be obtained by decentralization, but only by some effective means for the control of the central authority. That district committees would lend themselves more easily to factional manipulation than the central committee elected in a national convention by delegates well known to the members. It was urged that an underground party must have the possibility of instant decision and action by a small committee. It must act as a single machine, else it can never strike a decisive blow. Lack of confidence in officials was the central theme of the contrary argument. The party affairs, it was urged, must be brought nearer to the control of the rank and file. The central committees had been the breeding place of factional controversies. It was not asking much to give the district committees a veto in the choice of the organizers upon whom their work depended. Upon the first vote, the amendment was declared adopted. It then appeared that some of the delegates had misconceived the proposition to be one of appointing all organizers from the top downward, that is, subdistrict, 
section, branch, and group organizers, as well as the district organizers. A motion to reconsider was made and declared lost. Then followed a keen parliamentary battle, led by Damon, which finally resulted, after three roll calls, in a reversal of the original vote, 34 to 20. On the Federation question, the Joint Committee had come to no agreement. In curious contrast to the history of last summer, it was the Communist Labor Party Committee members who were loath to take a rigorous stand against federations. At the convention, the Communist Labor Party delegates took no group stand on this question. Two plans were presented, one for the Communist Party delegates by Damon, the other by Dubner and Rafailov for the Federation members of the Communist Labor Party. The debate was largely between the Federation delegates on both sides. The principal controversy was as to the existence of national executive committees for the language groups, this proposal being decisively voted down. Late in the afternoon of the fourth day of the joint sessions, it was decided to proceed with elections of party officials. There had been many hours of caucusing on each side as to elections. Regardless of the sentiment of the convention expressed by a majority vote against further caucuses, neither side was willing to risk a surrender of its group strength. A motion was made by Spark from the Communist Party that the Central Executive Committee be composed of the five Communist Party delegates and four Communist Labor Party delegates, receiving the highest votes, without consent, as between the Communist Party and Communist Labor Party candidates. The motion was not supported. Brown and Caxton were the nominees for international secretary. Brown, 30. Caxton, 23. With two to elect, there were four nominees for international delegate. The vote stood Damon, 30. Meyer from the Communist Labor Party, 28. Caxton, 26. Barry from the Communist Labor Party, 26. The lines were not holding. Four Communist Party votes had been divided between Meyer and Barry. Then came ten nominations for the nine places on the Central Executive Committee. Damon, Scott, Reinhardt, Delian, and Zemlin from the Communist Party, and Meyer, Klein, Flynn, Brown, and Dawson from the Communist Labor Party. These were the caucus nominations. Obviously, the Communist Labor Party caucus had determined to avail itself of the dissensions in the Communist Party ranks and to attempt to elect a majority of the committee. Damon, Scott, Klein, and Flynn received 29, Brown received 33, Dawson 32, Meyer 30, Reinhardt 26, Delian and Zemlin tied at 24. Damon, Scott, and Reinhardt quickly offered their resignations. A bitter discussion was precipitated. Both sides had played for control, and the result had been a boomerang. For how, it was urged, could the Communist Party delegates report back to their members that they had been outwitted in strategy 
in a way to give the minority control of the United Party. Even though the fault was that of the Communist Party delegates themselves, how could that remedy the outside situation? The Communist Labor Party speakers vehemently answered that what was done was the result of the will of the convention, that it was outrageous for members to resign from the Central Executive Committee simply because they felt they could not boss the committee and the party, that, after all, this outcome of the elections would be the best proof to the members that the old party lines had been forgotten. A motion for a recess of half an hour was adopted. Then began the tug of war, which went into the middle of the night, only to be resumed the next morning. The two groups, apparently completely welded, now standing sharply apart as Communist Party and Communist Labor Party. The convention vanished. In its place were two caucuses, with committees for interchange of offers and counterproposals. The strained item in the Communist Party camp had been an attack upon Caxton based on the majority Communist Party criticism. In the Communist Party caucus, after long discussion, he had been nominated for the Central Executive Committee 18 to 9. Later, Caxton withdrew his name. Now it was insisted that his name be reintroduced, making Zemlin the first alternate. The Communist Labor Party offered to substitute Caxton for Brown as International Secretary. The last morning found the situation deadlocked. To open the convention again meant to give the Communist Party the advantage of the renewed caucus pressure in favor of solidarity for Communist Party control, all questions of personality aside. The issue of control having been precipitated by the turn of the elections, the Communist Party delegates were in no mood to give up their demand for a majority of the Central Executive Committee. The Communist Party delegates made only one demand, to reopen the convention. It was for the other side to make the next move. There is nothing in the official record which suggests under what sort of surroundings all these things happened. As a matter of fact, the physical surroundings had a very important part in the struggle for unity, which is not at all illuminating to the reader who is asked to wait a few years for a description of these surroundings. Besides, how is one to visualize one group of delegates in heated argument while the other group is engaged in the singing of revolutionary songs, mostly Russian? How is one to imagine all this without something in the way of spatial dimensions? The singing group marches halfway toward the arguing group, a challenge to unity, the song of the Internationale and reluctantly marches back to its own meeting place. There is a committee conference. Before the report comes back, the lines are formed for a new march, this time to go all the way. Agreement is reported. A central executive committee of 10 members, the five Communist Labor Party candidates to stand elected, five Communist Party members now to be chosen. The march proceeds. It is the only report to the anxious Communist Labor Party delegates. The two groups merge into one another, all singing the Internationale. 
There is the grasping of hands, the embrace of comradeship. Nothing is said. There is too much feeling for speech. Unity is achieved. Recapitulating, the Central Executive Committee stands. Damon, Scott, Reinhardt, Delian, Caxton, Brown, Dawson, Klein, Flynn, Meyer. Alternates in the following order. Zemlin from the Communist Party, Dubner from the Communist Labor Party, Stone from the Communist Party, Jones from the Communist Labor Party, Kirker from the Communist Party, Hill from the Communist Labor Party, Ford from the Communist Party, Malcolm from the Communist Labor Party, Kazbek from the Communist Party, Logan from the Communist Labor Party. For International Secretary, Caxton replaces Brown. Damon and Meyer stand as international delegates. Scott, alternate for Damon. Barry, alternate for Meyer. An American Convention of Communists. Yet there was, more likely than not, a majority of, quote, foreigners, unquote, though the division was fairly even. But these were communists who were vitally concerned about the class struggle in America. People who really expected to take part in this struggle, not those who toyed with the communist movement here as a method of integrating themselves in Moscow. It was one of the most inspiring things about this convention, to hear delegates painfully struggling with the English language, no longer depending for expression on the artificial foreign language caucuses of prior conventions, but making themselves one with all the other delegates in defiance of barriers of language or nationality. Perhaps this was the greater unity achievement of this convention. Again and again, the sentence was heard. We have crossed the Rubicon. Every delegate was in the hands of their fellows, all subject to imprisonment, deportation, social and economic displacement. Yet most of the time, not without thanks to the irrepressible wit of the convention secretary, Smythe, the whole affair seemed like a jollification. Or perhaps it was the grim seriousness of it all that challenged relief and playfulness. A revolutionary movement driven underground is apt to be driven away at the same time from its own petty animosities and quibbles, forced to face the life-and-death character of the combat it is likely to discard pretenses, evasions, purposeless quarrels about persons. Confusion gives way to clarity. Hesitation yields to stern determination. A convention of revolutionists, a convention which relentlessly searched the truth of its every word and the heart of its every delegate. Thank you for listening to this reading from the People's School of Marxist-Leninist Studies. Support us at newoutlookpublishers.net, join us on Discord, follow us on Twitter, and visit peopleschool.org to sign up for free classes.